This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. Let's pray together. And so, Lord, that is, that is our prayer that we just sung, that, that you would, would speak. Lord, we need you to speak through your word today in the power of your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, now as, as we, we open up your word, Lord, we, we pray that as we, we begin this series in First Timothy, that you would give us a hunger and a thirst for the truth we live in a world that is so filled with, with lies. And so, Lord, we want to walk in your truth. We want to know your truth. We want to live your truth. And so, Lord, would you speak your truth through your word to us right now is our prayer. The powerful name of Jesus. Amen. So this is a very precious Bible to me. This is my first study Bible that was ever given to me. It was given to me by my, my parents. And uh, when they gave it to me, and uh, it's dated April 11th, 1990, my dad wrote this in the cover to me. Our dear son, always lift up Jesus and be faithful to the total contents of this Bible and God will bless you and use you in a great way. I cherish those words and I often go back and read them on tough days in ministry. And First Timothy are, are words that are written from a spiritual father to a son in ministry who is in an incredibly difficult situation in Ephesus. False teaching was tearing apart the, the church, but you know, behind the false teachers, there were dark powers, principalities and powers of evil. And Paul is writing to Timothy and saying, hey son, fight the good fight. And those are words that are not just for Timothy in first century Ephesus. Those are words for you and me today. The great English pastor J.C. Ryle in the 1800s said that the principal fight of the Christian is with the world, the flesh, and the devil. We're living in the midst of a fallen, broken world where right is called wrong and wrong is called right. And, and, and the fight that we're in with the world, it's not really with the lost people of the world that we're called to love and to win to Christ. The biggest battle, as far as our battle with the world, is the fight to keep from being conformed to the patterns of this world. Romans chapter 
12 and verse 2 says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So there's the world, and then there's the fight with our flesh. That's our sinful nature that all of us have. And our sinful nature just creates all kinds of, of issues for us. And it, it takes different forms with, it, with, every, with every believer, but we've all got to fight it. Our sinful nature, our flesh. You know, Wayne Poplin, uh, who was one of my mentors and, and my pastor here as a teenager, I heard Wayne preach a sermon uh, after he was retired, and he was looking back over the course of his ministry. And he said, you know, I, I started uh, in North Carolina, where I'm from, at Wilson Grove Baptist Church in, in Charlotte, and there was this guy in the church who was just like this opponent, and he was just a constant thorn in my side. And then he said, I, I came, I received the call to come to First Baptist Suffolk, Virginia. And so I came to, I came to First Suffolk, and then lo and behold, I, I, I came to understand that this guy had moved from North Carolina to Virginia. And he was in Suffolk. And he said, you know, I, I dreamed of adding a family life center when I came here. I didn't dream of adding this guy to membership, but you know, there he was. And he said, then I received a call to go to, to First Baptist Charlottesville, you know, historic place, you know, great Baptist preacher. John Broadus was the pastor there. Lottie Moon used to attend there. But Wayne said, then I, I found out somebody else was attending there too. Yeah. It was this same guy. And then finally, I received the call to, to go back to my home state, to Carmel Baptist Church outside of Charlotte. And it was just sweet to be in the Tar Heel State again. But here's what was not so sweet. <laughs> this guy had moved from Charlottesville to Charlotte. He said, do you know who he was? He was me. <laughs> Because the toughest battle that any of us have to fight is the war within. It's our flesh. It's our sinful nature that we've got to deal with, right? And that's a lifelong fight. Romans chapter 8 and verse 13 says, Because if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. There's that fight with the flesh. And then there's a fight with our supernatural enemy, the devil, who seeks to take us apart and devour us. First Peter 5 and verses 8 and 9 says, Be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him. Firm in the faith. And so listen, we've got to deal with the world, the flesh, and the devil. Christian, fight the good fight. Let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. And as we just kind of introduce the book today, 
we're going to be kind of setting the stage for what's to follow. We're going to look at the relationship between Paul and Timothy. We're going to look at kind of some of the things that were happening in that church at Ephesus that Paul is addressing in this letter and kind of get an overall feel of the landscape of where we're going to be going in 1 Timothy this fall. 1 Timothy chapter 1, and we're going to look this morning at verses 1 through 5. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true son in the faith, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. These promote empty speculations rather than God's plan which operates by faith. Now the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So we're going to begin this morning by looking at this relationship between uh, Paul and Timothy and talk about how godly relationships are a precious gift from God. So let's look first of all at verses one and two. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith. I want us to zero in on those words. To Timothy, my true son in the faith. This is obviously an incredibly close relationship between these two men. So I want to spend some time here at the beginning talking about that relationship. And I want us to look at this kind of from three angles. Okay, first of all, the story of Paul and Timothy. How did the two men meet? How did their friendship develop? Well, fortunately, Luke gives us lots of information in Acts. On Paul's first missionary journey, he went through the region of Galatia, would now be Turkey, and he went through a a town called Lystra, and that was Timothy's hometown. And so in all likelihood, Timothy, his mother, and his grandmother all became followers of Jesus on Paul's first missionary journey. Well, then on his second journey, he went back through that same region, back through Lystra again, and he, and, and, and he met up with Timothy then, and Luke tells us about that in Acts 16. So we see here in verse 1 that Paul went on to Derbe and Lystra where there was a disciple named Timothy, the son of a believing Jewish woman but his father was a Greek. Now, what this means is that Timothy's dad, his biological dad, was not a believer. 
Timothy did not, his biological father was not a godly man who was pouring God's love into Timothy. It was Paul that was going to fulfill that role in his life. You know, we have such a man problem in our culture today. So many of the pathologies, the sicknesses in our culture today are due to men not being men of God. You know, not pouring God's love into their families. Well, Timothy didn't have that either, but Paul was going to fulfill that role in his life. And then Luke tells us in verses 2 and 3, the brothers and sisters at Lystra and Iconium spoke highly of him, of Timothy. Paul wanted Timothy to go with him. Now, what a powerful picture of discipleship and action that this is. Paul was always on the lookout for for those with potential that he could pour into and spend time with. And he didn't, not only was he, did he want to teach Timothy, like in a, you know, kind of a classroom study, but he wanted him to go with him, to be with him, to do ministry. What, what, a, what a beautiful picture of discipleship this is. And, and, it, and it leads, it should lead us to ask three questions in our own lives. Who's your Paul? Who's your Timothy? Who's your one? Who's your Paul? Because you know what? We all need people that can pour into our lives and take us higher in our love for Jesus. And then we all need a Timothy that we are pouring into, someone that we are investing in and discipling. And then who's your one? Who's the, person in your, who's the person in your life that doesn't yet know Christ at all that you're praying for and sharing the gospel with? Because this is how it's supposed to work. It's, it's, it's disciples making disciples. And this is the vision of our church. This is how the kingdom grows. Jesus said it's like a mustard seed that kind of starts out as like this tiny seed and you can barely see it, but then it grows and grows and grows. That happens when disciples make disciples and reproduce themselves. You see just a beautiful picture of, of, of Paul doing that in, in Timothy's life here. He wanted Timothy to go and to be with him. And this is the pattern of Jesus as well. We see in Mark chapter three and verse 14 that he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles to be with him. That's what Paul does in Timothy's life. And so he takes him with him. And what a ride it was. (laughs) Because right after they leave Lystra, soon after that, they were going to go into Macedonia and they were going to come to Philippi. And we've looked at that over the past few weeks in our most recent series. They go into Philippi and yes, people come to Christ and a church starts, but there is tremendous opposition and a riot breaks out in Philippi. 
And then they have to leave Philippi and they go to Thessalonica at the beginning of Acts 17. And then the same thing, people come to Christ, but an all out riot breaks out in Thessalonica. And then they have to go, they go to Berea, but then the troublemakers from Thessalonica show up in Berea and Paul's gotta leave town again, but this time he tells Timothy to stay in Berea. And that was just the first difficult assignment <laughs> that Timothy was going to get. I want us to, to, to look at the value of Timothy to Paul. And here, we kind of need to play Mythbusters. There's a popular myth you know, in church circles, that Timothy was kind of a, you know, a, a fearful, weak, uh, somewhat uh, timid guy, a timid, timid Timothy, that kind of, that kind of, it's a myth that just kind of creeps into uh, Bible studies and sometimes into sermons and, and things like that. Listen, I have come to the conclusion that is absolutely not the case. Not only in studying First and Second Timothy and marinating in those two letters to get ready for this series, but in studying every single reference to Timothy throughout the New Testament in its context. What I have come to see is that, you know, not only was that not the case, in fact, the opposite was true. Whenever Paul had extremely difficult situations and he could not go personally, Timothy was the guy that he sent. And so far from being kind of, you know, uh, timid and, and backing out, you know, Timothy was more like Paul's Navy SEAL, his Delta Force operator. You know, when he couldn't go himself, he was sending Timothy into these very, very difficult situations to try to deal with it. And so we see that, first of all, in Berea. We see it in Corinth. There was a notoriously difficult situation in the church at Corinth. And so, you know, in the opening chapters of 1 Corinthians, Paul's having to say these really difficult things to that church. And he gets to chapter 4, of 1 Corinthians, and he says this, in 1 Corinthians 4, he says, I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children, for you may have countless instructors in Christ, but you don't have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. This is why I have sent Timothy to you, he is my dearly loved and faithful child in the Lord. He will remind you about my ways in Christ Jesus, just as I teach everywhere in every church. When Paul wanted this troubled church to be reminded of the gospel that he preached and his, the ways of gospel life, what does he do? Since Timothy. And then there was Thessalonica. You know, they, they, Thessalonica was a situation where they had to leave after a few weeks because of the persecution there, right? They didn't want the, the lives of the believers there uh, to be threatened. Paul had to leave. Paul was incredibly burdened 
about the church at Thessalonica because he was afraid, you know, these people, they're, they're babies in Christ. He was, he was concerned that the whole thing was just going to come apart. So again, what does he do to, to, to reassure them, to establish them in their faith? He sends Timothy. First Thessalonians 3 and verses 2 and 3. He says, and we sent Timothy our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you concerning your faith so that no one will be shaken by these afflictions. You know, so Timothy, rather than being, being a guy who was easily shaken, no, Timothy's the guy that you send into the situation when people are likely to be shaken. And so... The biblical evidence points to the fact that Timothy had some steel in his spine. He was courageous. He was a man of outstanding character. And he was also a gifted teacher. There's no way that you would send somebody into a situation like Corinth or Ephesus unless they were gifted in handling God's word and teaching God's word. So this was the value of Timothy to Paul. And then we see the love of Paul for Timothy. I mean, we can see it here in verse two, right? To Timothy, my true son in the faith. We see it in 1 Corinthians four seventeen, where he says, this is why I have sent Timothy to you. He is my dearly loved and faithful child in the Lord. In Philippians chapter 2 and verses 19 and following, Paul says, Now I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be encouraged by news about you. For I have no one else like-minded who will genuinely care about your interest. All seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know his proven character because he has served with me in the gospel ministry like a son with a father. I mean, what more do we need to see? I'm reminded of something that Jesus says about the church. And, and, and it's in Matthew 19. But Jesus says there, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields because of my name will receive a hundred times more and will inherit eternal life. Jesus is saying here that the church is like a family. It's the family of God. And whatever kind of family that you grew up in, and your biological nuclear family, in the body of Christ, you find a family of brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers and grandparents. You find love. You find love in the family of God because it's about the love of Christ for us. 1 John 4, 19 says, we love because he first loved us. Because it's in the church that the gospel is heralded. It's in the church where we hear about the love of God in Christ for us. And we find a family of love where we rejoice with those who rejoice. We weep with those who weep. We are there with one another as a family. And you find 
children in the faith. You find fathers and mothers in the faith, right? There's grandparents in the faith. It's a family of love. So godly relationships are a precious gift from God. Second, false doctrine, a disease to be combated. And we see that in verses three and four. Let's look at it. Paul says, as I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. These promote empty speculations rather than God's plan, which operates by faith. Now notice here in verse three that Paul gets right to the point. In a lot of his letters, there'll be kind of an extended Thanksgiving section. You don't see any of those niceties here, right? He gets right to the point. You say, well, isn't he kind of being abrupt with Timothy? Here's what you got to understand. And this is crucial to understanding 1 Timothy. Yes, 1 Timothy is written by Paul to Timothy, but it is super clear that Paul wants this letter read to the entire church. It is not a private letter. It is a letter that is to Timothy, yes, but it is to be read publicly to the church. And so Paul wants the church at Ephesus to hear this. He wants the troublemakers, the false teachers in Ephesus to hear this. And he wants them to know in no uncertain terms Timothy is there on my instruction. It's not here in verse three that Timothy needs to be reminded of why he's there. Timothy knows why he's there. <laughs> Paul is writing this because he wants the church to know Timothy is there with my backing completely and he wants these false teachers to hear. Timothy has my complete support. He's there at my instruction and he ain't going anywhere. He wants them to, to know that. Okay, so the message here, it's not really to Timothy personally in verse three. It's, it's, he's, really, he's really speaking to the church and speaking to those who were causing uh, trouble within it. Now, verse three is really a linchpin verse for First Timothy. It's so important that when we study a, a book of the Bible, that we understand the author's intent. Why was the author writing? What's his main purpose? And here again, we kind of need to play Mythbusters a little bit when it comes to 1 Timothy. You know, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus are called um, pastoral epistles. And so sometimes we get the idea, okay, he's, he's writing just to pastors about how to pastor. Well, first of all, Timothy's not a pastor. Timothy is an, an itinerant missionary who was in Ephesus for a limited amount of time for a specific purpose. And these letters, First and Second Timothy and Titus, they were not called the pastoral epistles until the 1700s, okay? So... 1,700 years plus of church history passed by before they were ever called it. Now, it's not that they aren't incredibly encouraging to pastors. They certainly are. But Paul's intent in writing is kind of not to lay out kind of a how-to book for pastors. It's not a manual on church order 
or church structure. Again, there are incredibly helpful things in these letters about how the church should be organized and the leadership of the church and all that. Yes, very helpful for that. But, but, but these letters are not written as sort of a, a manual for, you know, um, how to do church. Paul is addressing a very, very specific issue in Ephesus, and he tells us what it is. There's no mystery to it. He is telling us here in verse three, this is the issue. And so when you understand the authorial intent, it makes all kinds of things fall together in the letter as a whole. So let's dig into verse three here some more. It's so important. He says to remain in Ephesus. You know, there's that, that expression, some people want to want to live within the sound of chapel bells, but I want to run a, a, a mission a yard from the gates of hell. That was Ephesus, okay? It was a dark place spiritually. Looming over the city of Ephesus was the temple of Artemis, of Diana. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. But the stuff that went on in and around that temple, it was horrible. It was filled with occultic practices, sexual debauchery, prostitution, human trafficking. All these things were happening in Ephesus. Just an incredibly dark, dark place. But the light of Christ was shining. People had come to Christ in the middle of dark Ephesus and a church, a beacon of light had been planted in this place of darkness. In fact, Acts 19 tells us that so many people had come to Christ that the idol makers who made the shrines to Artemis were seriously furious with Paul and these believers. He, Luke tells us about it in Acts 19 and verses 24 and following. It says, for a person named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, provided a great deal of business for the craftsmen. When he had assembled them, as well as the workers who engaged in this type of business, he said, men, you know that our prosperity is derived from this business, making idols. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this man, Paul, has persuaded and misled a considerable number of people by saying that gods made by hand are not gods. Not only do we run a risk that our business may be discredited, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be despised and her magnificence come to the verge of ruin, the very one all of Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were filled with rage and began to cry out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And then Luke tells us that what happened was they went into the amphitheater in Ephesus. 
and you can see the ruins of it still there today. They go into this great amphitheater and there's this mob and they're chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And, and they, are, they, are, they are worked up in rage toward these Christians. And, and Luke tells us that Paul wanted to go into this amphitheater and address the crowd. <laughs> the believers wouldn't let him. <laughs> they knew he would be torn limb from limb. Now this is where Timothy is at. <laughs> He's in Ephesus, which had its, its own just all kinds of darkness, right, that are on the outside of the church. But now there's a problem that's developed on the inside of the church with these false teachers that are tearing the church apart. Now, it's very interesting when when Paul said goodbye to the Ephesian elders, and he was there for three years in, in Ephesus, very unusual, longest place that he ever stayed in one place. But when he, when he gathered the, uh, the elders in Ephesus um, and, and said goodbye, Paul, Paul had been given as an apostle, he had been given a revelation from the Lord about what was going to happen there in the future. And Luke tells us about it again in Acts 20 and verses 28 and following. Paul is speaking here to the Ephesian elders and he says, Be on your guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. And then he says this. He says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Men will rise up even from your own number and distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. Well, that was exactly what happened. Paul prophesied it here. This is exactly what had happened in Ephesus. And the false teachers in Ephesus were coming, as Paul says here, from your own number. There were other situations where false teachers were coming in from the outside. That does not seem to be the case here. This is an inside thing. These people were part of the church, and in all likelihood, they were elders in the church. That's what Paul is saying. He's speaking to these elders here. He says, from your own number, right? When he says here in, in, in verse three, remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine, those certain people are in the church and they're elders in the church that are supposed to be teaching the truth. And he says here in verse three, Remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine. That word there can be translated as charge, command. Command them not to teach false doctrine. Bill Mounts, probably the greatest scholar of the pastoral epistles 
in the past 50 years says this about that word. Mount says, Paul directs Timothy to stand before the Ephesian church and as if he were a general or a judge, strictly, officially, and authoritatively to command the false teachers to stop. And then he says here in verse 3 that it was false doctrine. Remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine or another doctrine, a different doctrine. And he was talking about the gospel. When he talks about doctrine here, he's talking about the faith once for all delivered to the saints. He's talking about the core issue of the gospel. This is not some argument over secondary issues. This is about the very nature of the gospel. Paul knows that if these false teachers carry the day in Ephesus, that the light of Christ will go out. It will be extinguished. And this city will be left in utter darkness. Now this is the stakes here. This is, you know, this is heaven and hell, life and death. This is a situation very much like was faced in, in the Galatian church. Notice what Paul says in Galatians 1 and verses 6 through 9. He says there, I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. As we have said before, I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, a curse be on him. As it was in Galatia, so it was in Ephesus. I mean, this is a, a core gospel issue. It is a perversion of the gospel. It is a false gospel. So what was it? Well, there's mystery, but we see a good, strong hint of it in verse 4. Let's look at verse 4. He says, instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. These promote empty speculations rather than God's plan, which operates by faith. So we see two things here in verse four. First of all, we see something about the nature of the false teaching. And then we see what kind of behavior the false teaching led to. So first of all, the nature of the false teaching itself. It involved, it involved myths and endless genealogy. Scholars believe that this was a perversion of the Old Testament. You know, in the Old Testament, you have many lists of names, right? Genealogies, you know, so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so. So apparently, what these false teachers were doing was that they were, they were looking at these Old Testament genealogies and they were claiming that they had derived some secret knowledge, you know, some code that nobody else knows, but we know this is classic cult behavior, right? This is David Koresh, Jim Jones, right? That's what they do, 
right? I, I've got this secret knowledge and I can man, you can manipulate people with that. So that was what was happening. And then he tells us about kind of what that led to. It led to empty speculations. What a word for our day, right? I mean, especially since 2020, I mean, just the, you know, the combination of, of, of COVID and the internet and politics. I mean, like you see so many people just going down rabbit holes and engaging in empty speculation. And ju they just become consumed with it instead of digging into God's word, <laughs> the truth that comes from him. They're wasting their time with all of this empty speculation, just this toxic brew of, you know, of conspiracies and rabbit trails and lies. Myths. Notice that word here in verse four. Myths in contrast to what? God's plan, God's plan, the gospel, right? That word can be translated as stewardship, right? These elders had been given a stewardship, you know, to, to steward the gospel, the plan of God, and yet they were perverting that and teaching a false gospel. Myths in contrast to God's plan, which is by faith. What's God's plan? It's the gospel. The gospel. First Corinthians 15, verses three and four. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins and according to the, to, to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's not a myth. That's not good advice, that's not speculation. That's fact, that's God's plan. God loved us so much that he really gave his son who really died for sinners like you and me and was really buried and really raised from the dead and he's really going to return in victory. Not myth, not empty speculation, fact. God's plan, and you receive that by faith, not by receiving, not by some secret code or information. It doesn't need to be decoded. It's the plain truth. I remember a, a conversation back in the late 90s, and I was getting my, my hair cut one day, and and the woman who, who cut my hair, this is, in the late 90s, there was this book called The Bible Code that came out, and it was just trash. I mean, it was like, supposed to be all these, you know, uh, codes embedded in the Hebrew Bible, and, you know, and so, you know, she's, she's confused and lost, and she, she knows, I'm, but she knows I'm a pastor, and so I, I never forget this conversation because she says to me that day, she says, hey, what, I'm reading this book. What do you think about all these codes embedded in the Hebrew Bible? Like it was fact, you know. And I remember thinking, yeah, well, this conversation needs to be turned. And I said, 
what do you think of Jesus Christ? Because he wasn't an encoded message. He was an enfleshed message that tells you how much God loves you. Because God became a human being. But the difference was this is a human being who had no sin like you and me. And we need a savior. And a savior has been provided. And he became a human being and he lived the perfect life the perfect sinless life that we can never live. And he died the death we should have died on the cross and he was raised from the dead, really raised. And he's reigning today as King of kings and Lord of lords and he loves you and he's shown how much he loves you and you don't have to decode it. It's right there. And you know how you receive it? By faith. That's what Paul is saying here, right? This is God's plan, the gospel, you know, which is received by faith. Now, I shared the truth with that woman that day because I loved her, I cared about her. And that's where he's going next in verse five. True correction, a goal motivated by love. He says in verse five, now the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Now we're gonna dive much more into verse five next week, but I want to introduce it today. Because Paul is saying here, look, he wants this church to hear it. He says, I'm saying what I'm saying. And Timothy is there saying the same thing to you because we love you. And God loves you. And he has shown you his love in the gospel. And we want you to get back to the gospel. We want you to get back to the love that God has plainly revealed to you. Get away from these empty speculations and myths. Get back to the gospel. Come home to love. Come home to God's love for you in Christ. And come home to loving one another again the way that you should. Come home. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the, the truth of the gospel, Lord. The love that you have shown for us in the gospel. Lord, help us to stay true to it. To guard it, protect it, and share it. Share it broadcast this news to a world that needs it. And so Lord, would you make us faithful to do that? Would that vision be placarded before our minds and our hearts each day? Your love for us in the gospel and the need to herald that love. Lord, we see here the, the way that your kingdom is supposed to work, the way your church is supposed to work. Disciples making disciples. What a beautiful picture that is. Lord, bring to mind those three questions. Who's your Paul? Who's your Timothy? Who's your one? As we reflect, listen, do you have people in your life that can help you 
that are pouring into you a, a Paul. Christians, who's your Timothy? Who are you pouring into? Who are you investing in? Who's your one? There are people in your life who do not know Christ and they need to know him. They need to know the gospel. God's put you in, your, in their life to love them and to share the gospel with them and to invite them to the family of God where they can learn more about his love. What are you gonna do about that? How are you gonna act on that? This book is about discipleship and action. And so Lord, we pray that you would help us to see that this fall as we take this journey through 1 Timothy and as you reveal to us your vision. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12: to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you wanna spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia.